I don't know, man. You ever just feel like life is just catapulting towards some greater purpose? The only DJ crazy enough to tattoo Jackie Brown on his ass. This is Michael Mann, and I ride with extended clips. Welcome to Extended Clip, episode 58. I'm one of your hosts, Eddie Averill. I'm Malcolm Baum. I'm JT White. And calling in all the way from London, Ontario, Canada. Uh, you may know him as a film podcaster, our colleague in that regard, <laughs> and a, uh, a film critic in his own right, and theater manager and programmer. And y- you know him if you're on Twitter with us. It's Josh Lewis. What's up, man? Hey, guys. How's it going? Good to be here. Long time listener, first time caller. You know the drill. well uh you know eagle-eyed listeners and by that i mean people i talk to uh will know that josh and i've had a little correspondence in the trenches you know we've been playing a little bit of call of duty war zone uh you know it's it's a slightly different trench from that of film criticism but i think we can take some of those foundations that we've laid on the battlefield (laughs) (laughs) and uh bring them to analyzing genre films that's brotherhood right there yeah Yeah. Uh, So our double feature today is Deja Vu, the 2006 film by Tony Scott, and Femme Fatale, the 2002 film by Brian De Palma, Uh, two of our favorite dudes. And Josh, why why did you bring these two films in particular to the pod? Uh, Well, I paired these two because you asked me to bring on stuff that, or you asked me to bring on at first, like one piece of high art and one piece of low art. And because I literally can't conceptualize that, I just was just like, well, here's one low art. And then here's a movie I think goes with that low art that is also kind of disrespected. But I am glad to see that both of these movies are kind of being a little bit more um, reclaimed recently. But both of these films were considered, I think, critical disappointments when they came out, especially by sort of like late career filmmaker turns by legends, Tony Scott and Brian De Palma. Uh, but the reason I think that they work so well together is one, I just absolutely love them both. And it is just two late auteurs basically applying their own sensibilities to the, basically the same Hitchcock riff. They're ba- basically both loosely doing vertigo, but with mm-hmm. modern tech where cameras and images and technology are used both sort of textually and metatextually as like ways of changing reality, conquering death and, and fate, and both have all kinds of voyeurism and death and are very... Uh, romantic about the possibility of movies which is uh, all of my interests in one it's hard to imagine like what i like about cinema and not basically just describing the films of brian de palma and tony scott uh and i think this one especially like deja vu's riff on vertigo comes in a time where you know it's it's a post 9-11 movie, but it's also then another national tragedy was added onto it as Hurricane Katrina happened. And, you know, uh, filming was, I, I guess, delayed and then they went back to New Orleans to finish. And uh, that, like, the the combination of post 9-11 surveillance and just the seemingly endless tragedies of America that have been happening since the turn of the century, uh, put deja vu in like such a different world than mm-hmm. something like vertigo where you know this one man's psychological story seems to i guess matter more than in deja vu where it's like it can uh, so much can change due to this one man's story but still in the grand scheme of it, it seems so small because of everything else you know mm-hmm. 105.3 fm 
Um, so, I mean, we might as well just get right into Deja Vu. Uh, it's a film by Tony Scott, as we said. Denzel Washington plays an ATF agent named Doug Carlin. <laughs> and uh, he arrives on the scene after a domestic terrorist strikes a boat carrying uh, 50 Navy guys. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> what, do, what do you call them? Navy, Navy, Navy seamen. You call yeah. them heroes. <laughs> <laughs> There, there, there is a big uh, support our troops uh, a bumper sticker at one point in this. Oh, yeah. I love that. But it's like over a lock of a chest is a yeah. support our troops bumper sticker just sealing away all of our secrets. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, so this script, you know, it's kind of a high concept sci-fi script that Tony Scott wasn't that pleased with and wanted to drop some of the sci-fi elements and I guess the screenwriters were a bit disgruntled with the final results and also the Wikipedia <laughs> seems to be written by the screenwriters I have to say. <laughs> they're out here rewriting history yeah uh, <laughs> when Tony Scott even though from beyond the grave is the only one truly able to rewrite history True. he'd rather rewrite with his camera yeah uh, <laughs> JT, you've, before we get into what this film's about, JT, you've been watching some more Tony Scott films lately, right? Yeah, this, uh, like in prep for this week, I have been sucking down Scott's like nobody's business, um, particularly like the late era Tony Scott's, mm -hmm. like the 2000s. I think that's like the most interesting period for me where he's really honing like that super fast style. Yeah. And this, I mean, I was glad that I ended like, uh, catching up this week with this one because it sort of feels like the height of all of those fixations, mm -hmm, especially mm -hmm. like sort of the individual versus like this large institution that becomes like very obsessed and paranoid with like one particular aspect. Um, yeah, no, it's been a fun ride with Tony. Yeah, I know. It's like all those layers of uh, government bureaucracy that he has to get to just to fucking do a little time travel, man. You know? <laughs> yeah, he just wants to do the right thing. Exactly. Well, and, uh, and, and, and it's really interesting, too, because obviously, like, when he was coming out with these films, especially this period, like, he was, people basically thought that he had lost it, that he had given into, like, these, um, you know, sort of commercial MTV flashy sort of aesthetics and wasn't doing anything more with them than, say, I don't know, I, I guess a lot of people compared them to Michael Bay just because he was also under the sort of Bruckheimer banner. And Bruckheimer did love paying people to shoot oversaturated action thrillers on like a telephoto lens with slow motion and helicopter shots. He, he, he did love doing that. <laughs> um, and and to be fair, like, you know, Scott does use them all. And it was he did have to, I feel like after his death, people kind of went back and looked at them and saw more artistry. Um, in what he was doing and it kind of sucks that it, it, it came so so late because like you know there was a lot to be done with this style but this style could not be further from what anyone wants to do like it's such a disrespected mode of filmmaking um despite the fact that it could clearly be used for so many interesting things as we saw in in deja vu i would agree that deja vu is is really like like the height um of it just because it's so merged perfectly with the storytelling my colleague and and critic jake cole wrote about this film just a couple months ago um where he said that uh scott's like relentless and restless camera sort of like reflects the manner in which like denzel and the investigators can obviously use the technology to hop around to every angle and peer into the past and all these sort of like fragmented cutting and crazy stylistic choices that he makes really gets you wrapped up in the the process of what they're doing and also reminds you 
as a viewer that you are, uh, as he put it, watching the Watchmen and peeking into their own sort of um, psychological states while they're literally using a tool for surveillance. So the fact that his style is kind of doing two things, where it's genuinely exciting and getting you propulsively into you know, the mystery that is unfolding. Scott Scott is not uh, above, you know, giving you some classic genre play. Um, but the way that, you know, he also surrounds in the mise-en-scene, like just so many screens and glowing lights coming off of every image and the way that he uses the sort of like textured 35, but with like, I think they said there was like five or 600 digital effects shots in this film. So with also mm-hmm. VFX, like motion blurs and streams of lights and, and glitches and like a merging of like what looks like real zooms and sometimes like digital zooms at the same time. So he really just like wild out with getting you into the idea of a time travel story while at the same time, you know, sort of like reflecting the psychological aspects of, of Denzel's journey, which ends up being sort of like the most compelling stuff in the movie. A lot of the criticisms, I went back and read some of the old reviews just to see what people like were upset about. And a lot of them were like, you know, it's pretty action packed, but, um, you know, you you, uh, you you think about it for a second, and uh, it doesn't really hold up. You know, there's a lot of lot of plot holes and stuff. And I literally watched this movie, and I don't even like I don't even know what the plot holes are. It's possible that they're there. They don't really describe them in depth. But like, I get so absorbed in like Denzel's character and the emotional experience that he's under, and sort of like how he builds those emphatic moments and feelings. Like, I can't imagine watching that scene of him looking up at like a a, a blown up Paula Patton face and the superimposed image of her digital face on top of his real fleshy face and just being like yeah this doesn't make sense to me i don't understand like it makes so much (laughs) emotional sense in the moment (laughs) i mean we talked about we did unstoppable uh his final film a while back on the podcast and we talked about how the the textures of his images kind of push uh, film itself as far as it can go. You know, you get mm-hmm. textures that people are trying to replicate with digital and can't even do. And, you know, yeah, he is using some HD cam stuff to get these motion blurs that are crazy. And, you know, once you get the uh, the setup of the film, you know, you're in this office where they're using surveillance tools that they first tell Denzel uh, are also being used in Iraq. And uh, even though that is just a mislead, it does perfectly cue you into what this movie is, is it's the surveillance state of a Patriot Act America, you know, mm-hmm. and, and you yep. know, Josh, we, we know you, you're uh, up above the border, but d- down mm-hmm. south of the border, uh, we had a little uh, lack of freedom for a little while during the Bush era there, a little bit of Patriot Act action. And oh, yeah. I think this film does demonstrate that lack of security that comes with, you know, the most security that the government could possibly try to give you. They even explicitly say in the movie that they're using this not to, you know, save Paula Patton, but, Mm -hmm. you know, just to catch whoever did it. It's not really to protect people. It's more to punish and to speak more on, like, you know, the stylism of Tony Scott and how it's, you know, he loves reflections, like an unstoppable. You see um, the window and the reflection of it. With this, like you see Denzel, the with Denzel, he the screen is reflected on his face, and you yeah. see him, you know, literally falling in love with the movies. Yeah, you know, he, no, uh, it's yeah, exactly in, in the you know the 
Snow White, you know, hyper surveillance room, which, you know, kind of mimics an editing bay. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think the fact Snow White, if I recall correctly, is the first feature length American animation movie. Really? And in terms of groundbreaking uh, technology and someone kind of falling in love with a new type of image, I think that's kind of a, a nice little clue not clue but a, n- a nice little thing that was thrown into the script and I, I have some problems with the script uh but like they're not major enough to make it into like problems with the movie itself you know mm-hmm. i feel like any problem in this script is because it just feels too kind of screenwritery like the way that they set up that line of dialogue about what if you had to tell someone the most important thing in the world but you knew they'd never believe you and like that works perfectly in the movie, but it is like the most screenwriter ass kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, and 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 let's not mince words. The, the screenwriters are like absolute fucking dorks. Like they are. Yeah. Like they, <laughs> like they 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 basically said that when they wrote this movie, they spent like you know ten or twenty years like making sure that it was the it was perfectly uh, clear and it made absolute sense. It was like a, it, like they are the guys who watch time travel movies and like freak out about like you know sort of the explicated exposition and how much yeah. it makes sense and all of that and and yeah so they were upset when when tony you know was was directing it because they were basically like no no you don't understand it's a sci-fi movie it's like minority report or something and the chad tony was just like no denzel horny for the lady and the picture machine go burr and you know that kind of shit um <laughs> I mean, who among us hasn't seen a woman on a screen and risked it all? (laughs) Not me, not me personally. Um, Kind of above that. But, um, you know, it's funny, these screenwriters being so exact about the particulars, you know, couldn't have picked a worse director for their movie. Tony Tony Scott, who loves, you know, abstract images and like abstracting everything. Yeah. it's a good, you know, I like, I like the fate that happened here for them. Exactly. I mean, and so to get a little bit into what actually does happen here, since we kind of got sidetracked for most of this segment, uh, <laughs> not sidetracked, we talked about the movie, yeah. but we got sidetracked <laughs> from the plot because it's a Tony Scott movie and you'd rather discuss the images than the plot. Well, yeah. Well, and, 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 and like, keep in mind, like, you know, this is the type of movie where like, you know, he will do a typical scene like Denzel showing up at a crime scene and doing like his Will Graham thing where he shows up and he's looking at the details and he's looking for the stuff but like the actual mood of the filmmaking is like insane telephoto close-ups 360-ing around his head while the music goes and he's observing all of the corpses and you feel sort of like his pain in that moment and like that is just not how anyone else would choose to shoot the scene of the badass cop coming onto the crime scene who's gonna solve the case it's just it's, it's, it's very sort of like um overactive but very sensitive to his character at the same time which is just you know and again also abstracted through with the images so it's just like you know tony scott did not ever look at a scene and be like i'm gonna shoot this like anyone else would and it's very clearly what the screenwriters wanted from him yeah i mean if you watch the fucking uh bmw commercial that he shot or whatever and that was like suppose you know they were trying to make it into a thing where they hired directors to make quote-unquote short films out of commercials uh, but his is just so fucking ridiculous, like pulling off so many stylistic maneuvers that you would never see in a feature film. And, you know, he's able to bring that experimental approach that you often see in short form into a two hour mm-hmm. movie, two plus hour movie in something like Man on Fire, uh, which I think is a perfect companion with this if you want to watch another Tony Scott movie. Yeah. Well, and it's just so clear, too, that like, 
you know, these guys were so focused on sort of like the time travel plot elements, which which are exciting in the way that Tony Scott films them, but it's just so obvious. And from what I understand, uh, him and Denzel were so much more focused on sort of like the romantic <laughs> angle of the film, which the other guys were kind of like, no, no, that's just like our setup. But like they saw it as like another sense of of vertigo. When when Peter Labuza briefly wrote about the film, he quoted the the vertigo Hitchcock thing where he was talking about being intrigued by the hero's attempts to recreate the image of a dead woman through another one who's alive and it's like that is very so much clearly more what tony scott was interested in filming than what what they were even though he still you know he still gave them what they wanted i mean do they they and and some of it still still worked like they they wanted so badly for that car chase scene to be like iconic and Tony Scott apparently regrets that he didn't like shoot it even crazier because apparently he just wasn't as into it as he was into like you know the close-ups of Denzel's face while he's looking at the screens and the things that that, mm-hmm. that he's sort of feeling um, in that in that moment um, because there is another version of this movie that exists and it's like a Nolan movie it's just like exposition dumps and oh, it's yeah. like completely but I don't know there's there's just a side of me that like I can't imagine this movie like without you know Denzel's expressions in this movie um it, mm-hmm. i could it just be so boring like his sort of like subtle obsessiveness and feelings of pain and loss about the deaths on his watch and his conviction in like sort of like overcoming those things through sheer effort and then tony scott translating that into i get what i would i guess i'd kind of call it like a james cameron sense of like romanticism about like what we can do through sheer will and engineering because that's all he can make up any fucking movie about um and and tony scott you know using every you know piece of tech uh given to him at that time you know to sort of like metatextually get it at the same thing i end up largely finishing this movie and being like this is a really entertaining movie but i am just like endlessly moved by like scott's romanticism about the filmmaking process like when when denzel interrupts that uh with with the laser pointer he shoots it at the screen and he like gets he he gets in the middle of the process like that is so clearly like what cinema is (laughs) always you understand it's like a single trailing moment of now in the past okay oh i mean in terms of the romantic angle to this i feel like that's one reason that makes like Scott and De Palma like a perfect pairing because I think in both their treatment of women is like different whereas like Scott I mean even when there's no like um, traditional romance in his movies his the way he approaches like sexuality and desire is more in that romantic sense where it's a wine and dine like a big spe- melodramatic spectacle whereas Brian De Palma is the 69 em yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's sleazy and dirty and horny and it's just the contrast of both of those pairs really well together mm-hmm. I think I think Tony Scott and Denzel is a great combo too because I think Denzel kind of matches Tony's kinetic energy and mm-hmm. can you know definitely get on his wavelength. And I think, you know, some of the more screenwritery parts of this movie, one where like the science is being explained, how it's like a fold in time, the way Denzel reacts to that, you know, it's like, you know, speak English, (laughs) stuff like that, (laughs) throwing a chair at the screen. Like he definitely carries that scene that, you know, just could be a lot of like Adam Goldberg explaining (laughs) things. Yeah, I've seen too much of him in in Entourage. Yeah, you heard about that show, Adam Ruins Everything. (laughs) (laughs) 
if you're listening to this, I'm sure you know what deja vu is about, but we still didn't get to it. Uh, so <laughs> after this terrorist attack, uh, some investigation work is done by D- uh, Doug Carlin, and he, he finds uh, Paula Patton's uh, body to be a clue. And if we find out who got to her to kill her, uh, we will find the terrorist. And so what ends up having to happen is uh, after this surveillance system is exposed as the time machine that it is uh denzel puts himself in the time machine and i feel like another connection between this and man on fire is like the whole time this time machine is described as something that can only transfer energy and you know they they send the piece of paper and it causes a blackout across the city and then they're like you know what we'll just fucking put denzel washington in it (laughs) just like in man on fire when it's like they're trying to be tactical about the weapons that they're using in the bomb it's like no i'm just gonna shove it up the guy's ass like that's the way better version you know uh and so eventually Denzel does go back through this third act where he is uh, now in this alternate version of reality that's a few days before mm-hmm. and his his relationship with Paula Patton's character is so strange it's you know to call to mind another vertigo riff it's kind of like the last episode of Twin Peaks the return when Cooper finds uh, this version of Laura in Texas you know and he goes to that diner and he like has to pull a gun on those bikers and uh, it's it's very much like that when Denzel is in this new version of the world and he has to grab a gun from an EMP driver or whatever or EMT driver and steal that truck and you know he even has uh, the the point at which Paula Patton at first wants to call the cops and just get rid of him is when he goes full vertigo mode and asks her to change her red dress into the blue <laughs> one which is obviously just like the scene where you know uh, Madeline or I guess Judy walks out of the bathroom reimagined as Madeline instead of, you know, Jimmy Stewart having his vertigo moment. It's Denzel having a brief moment of horniness before having a gun pulled on him and realizing that he just has to fucking get to work because at 1050, you know, uh, shit's about to go down. So after the climax, you get the beautiful ending of Denzel reappearing, this new version of him. And, you know, that glance between them, that uh, familiar feeling is all that's needed to, you know, make that connection work for the very end of the movie. It's really important, too, that, like, like he he finally runs into her. And when he, like, finally, like, holds her in the flesh and, like, saves her from, from the bomber. And she's just, like, completely scared and, like, confused yeah. about him entirely. But obviously everything about about her we've seen like entirely through him so he's basically already in love with just like this the same way as vertigo in love with this image of her that he's been following and he talks about at one point where he makes a joke about how he held her hand once and that he was literally holding like when he first meets her she's dead she's on she's on a slab uh he's doing the autopsy with her so to contrast you know her him looking at her dead body and then spending the entire movie looking at images of her and slowly falling in love with her to finally being confronted by the real her. And just the way, again, that Denzel, it's so loaded, the way that he, like, looks at her. And and she obviously picks up on those signals and is like, what the fuck is going on? And is so confused. So it's such a great moment <laughs> when she pulls the gun on him. And it's like, you're going to, like, start to explain some shit to me because you're acting like we, we know each other. And, and one of the most beautiful elements of this is that... Uh, through the third act where he finally you know he goes back 
and it the movie repeats like all of the same sort of opening images of the film which is the celebration um before the death and we see all the aftermath of the corpses sort of lingering with us as we watch denzel maneuver deja vu through the exact same images before they went wrong and obviously trying to change them and 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 fix them um and then he ends up doing that and basically recreating the ending of the prestige uh uh where he he kills himself to pull off the magic trick that then his other self take takes his place but that ending when when the second denzel shows up and paula Patton has spent this entire third act you know now getting sort of emotionally invested in in denzel and you know um how much he he you know uh wanted to help the conviction that he had to change things um and then all of a sudden she's looking at you know she's projecting that image of him that she has onto this new version who you know as far as we know is an entirely different person if you buy uh, whatever the 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 theory i mean there's three different theories that they pose in the film doesn't really matter again this is about characters <laughs> falling in love with images of of each other and but to have that Paula Patton, who gets the full experience of sort of being projected onto, and then ending the film by projecting onto someone else, uh, it, it it's like it's it's a very romantic idea, and it really like layers the have we met moment, which is another screenwritery moment, but it's just it is very well conceived by the writers, mm-hmm. and Tony Scott couldn't have directed it any better to get to that point. So, gotta love it. Um, any final thoughts on this one before we wrap up and rate it on a scale of one to five bullets, JT? Yeah, I don't know. To speak to something, I mean, we mentioned like briefly earlier, it just fascinates me how much of uh, Scott's like work in the 2000s is like fixated on like the surveillance state. Even in like 98 with like Enemy of the State, he was on to like NSA bullshit um like where there's like an assassination so it's like and working with Bruckheimer and Simpson it's like Tony Tony fucking knew about the the dirty secrets in the world and is relaying uh messages of hope to us um he was silenced by the media exactly (laughs) um but yeah no it's we've talked about how crazy beautiful it is and just that fixation there with digital images i absolutely love it it's uh my favorite tony scott so i'm gonna give this one five bullets you malcolm me yeah i mean i love this movie i love um how you know kind of it registers kind of like a sad emotional tone with you know you have this denzel character who's so willing just to give himself to anything that he'll put himself in a time machine you know sacrifice himself to you know oh my god that, that scene attack. where he does that too and like yeah. how it like goes into his eyeball with the green laser and it like <laughs> yeah, so it, 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 it looks like a like a david lynch uh visual effects uh <laughs> like like from the return with the people with like no eyes or something as it like blurs and fucks <laughs> up his face no yeah it's it's really good and I mean, yeah, how, how like these emotional moments kind of inform this expressionism that he gets to play with, which, you know, you just want more of that. And even, you know, the action set pieces, how some of are written, like the goggles, the idea of the goggles, I will give the screenwriters that. Like, yeah, no, it's I, sick. It's really <laughs> sick, like having to, you know, it's kind of like me when I look at my phone while I drive. <laughs> um, so that's that's kind of become a reality. No, but no, they're, 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 you're, you're right. There's definitely no like... 
that is such a perfect way to get one foot in the past, one foot in the present, like happen mm-hmm. simultaneously on screen in action, which sometimes he does literally through split screen as like one eyeball is looking through the goggles and one eyeball is looking through yeah. the modern traffic <laughs> he's trying driving through. So good. No, yeah. And Scott's kind of um, obsession with, you know, the present cutting between the present and the past. I mean, it's perfect for just his natural cross cutting style. He's yeah. right at home here. And uh, yeah, I'm gonna give it five bullets. Damn, I think we're all in the greens here. I'm also giving it five. This is a masterpiece. I've been, you know, uh, you know, pussyfooting around the Tony Scott filmography. I haven't dropped a five bullet rating on any of them yet. Lots of fours, four and a half. This is a masterpiece. It's, I, you know, I saw this opening weekend with my older cousin, and we rode our bikes to the theater. And I don't remember the movie at all. And I thought it was gonna like come back to me while I was watching it and have that deja vu, deja vu experience but that that is not the case Uh, but I I was happy to watch this movie for the first time all over again I think that Scott's uh, expressionism mixed with just his ability to create action chaos and uh, the sentimentality and just the callbacks to vertigo and just you know the kind of uh, film formulas of emotionalism that have you know, driven so many of my favorite filmmakers over the last hundred years. So it's a, it's a capstone achievement for old Tony and I'm giving it five. What about you, Josh? Yeah, no, it's gotta get the five, five for me just because I mean, sort of like Miami Vice, which came out the same year magically. It's just another like commercial action crime movie that you've seen before, but drawn with so much formal inventiveness regarding the digital tech as a device to accentuate, obviously, like the romantic elements and the existential elements. It's very beautiful. Um, But then, you know, like, I just kind of wish that we had people like this punching up like stupid pulpy scripts like this. Like, it's just like, you know, Mm -hmm. like the... uh, there's just something so beautiful about the 35 millimeter mixed with the digital effects and color correction and blurring that they do. And it, it really builds up to these amazing feelings that I pull out of this movie, which is just the kind of thing you don't go to this kind of movie to see anymore. Like, uh, it's hard enough for these movies to exist, let alone for someone to like bend them to their will, um, to the point where, you know, Tony Scott basically like slows down and abstracts time in this moment for, or in this movie to absorb Denzel looking at a picture of Paula Patton in the exact same style that he would slow it down for like an explosion, which this movie also does too. And they're beautiful, but it's just, you know, like, like not having people do that anymore. It, it sucks. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, rest in peace. Tony Scott. Tony Scott. (laughs) (laughs) He's got a really serious and somber talking about his death. Uh, the uh, old, old T Scott, the old man croaked uh god i don't know what i'm doing here uh, we'll be right back on extended clip anything you want to say just talking to the mic that man can always use more alcohol tobacco and firearms i can think of one more thing and we're back on extended clip malcolm in the middle everyone's favorite segment what have you been watching this week malcolm um, you know before i start my segment i just want to say uh, life is unfair <laughs> um <laughs> but <laughs> so, damn Malcolm in the middle damn he hit me oh, with that yeah. <laughs> damn um just wanted to say that but um you know there are fair aspects to life you know there's a lot to live for <laughs> the fair and, and, sex yeah and uh yeah the, fair, you know, the ladies of course but um I'm talking about movies here and one movie I watched this week that I enjoyed is the, the Disorderly Orderly. Ooh. An old Jerry Lewis Tashlin connection. You know, um, 
the movies that Jerry Lewis directed are great. And um, I think Tashlin, you know, people say that like Don Siegel taught Eastwood how to direct. Um, David O. Russell taught Bradley Cooper. I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not. But um, <laughs> I feel like I feel like Tashlin definitely gave Jerry a few tricks. Oh yeah. And um, I mean, this this d- disorderly orderly is basically. Um, if like the bellboy was uh, an orderly in a hospital, and so he's a, uh, and who has a aversion to pain, so if he hears someone in pain, he starts to feel it himself, and um, oh, so he's an empath. He's an empath. He's an <laughs> INTJ. Um, <laughs> and um, I mean, this is this is. I mean, Tashlin used to make cartoons, and you know, I mean, it, it fucking shows here. I mean, there's so many gags here, like um, like a silent room, just Jerry mouthing out, you know, words, just trying to be his loud self, but quiet. Mm-hmm. There's a one scene where Jerry rolls down a hill in a medical bed and it crashes into a grocery store. And then you get 10 shots of a row of just mountains of canned goods being <laughs> knocked over like bowling pins. Just it's, it's so, uh, it's so destructive. It's so, it's so creative with this destructiveness. And, um, I mean, Jerry's great in it. He's basically doing, you know, he's dancing around doing his usual stuff. There's little, literally a scene where, um, He's trying to avoid this old woman who loves to talk about her pain or whatever because he'll start to feel it himself. And so he's like pretty much just pacing around like dancing and he has, like, he has to pretend like he's dancing. You have to see him hit a nice ballet. Damn. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of, you know, it's another classic for Jerry and I recommend it. Jerry's got nothing but classics and he's been visiting us in the middle segment. Uh, I think it's been a regular thing the I last mean, few weeks. I mean, it's, it's, you know, in times like these. <laughs> you need you, to laugh. You just need to laugh. <laughs> you gotta laugh. <laughs> Uh, what about you, JT? Um, I'm going to talk about another Tony Scott. Um, just the other night, I watched uh, 2001's Spy Game, Ooh. and uh, it was homoerotic as hell, and I loved it. I was there, I was ready for that. It's Robert Redford and uh, Brad Pitt, and Redford is like a uh, CIA agent who Brad Pitt is his like protege. He's trained him up, and... Uh, He's been, uh, Pitt has been captured by the Chinese. And so the whole, uh, move- our friends, <laughs> friend of the podcast, the Chinese. Um, and so, uh, the whole movie is him sort of like, uh, explaining to like other CIA agents, like sort of the meet cute, the story of how they met, like just Redford is giving his like relationship to him and trying to like lobby for them to save him because they're like, uh, he's just going to like fucking die. And it's beautiful because you only see in the film, Redford and Pitt interacting in the past, never the present day. They're always like separated because uh, Pitt is in China, like held hostage. But just it ends like beautifully, like dissolving between like the two men. It's just like I it only could have gone to the next level with them just kissing. I really wanted that. Um, but it was another fantastic Tony Scott, not as stylized, but you see like all the same fixations. See, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I could do that one because, uh, my, my thing about Robert Redford and Brad Pitt is I've always wondered why they haven't played father than son before. They both do the same (gasps) underbite thing in their old movies. (laughs) And if every time, every time Redford does it, I'm like, yo, Brad Pitt stole like half of the way that he presents himself on screen from Robert Redford. That, Damn. That's true. That that might add a little bit to the watching, though. It's kind of like a hot father father son romance <laughs> <Yeah>. type movie. <laughs> That'd Cute. be like if there's yeah, like a stepdad. Mic- that's definitely a step spy game. Type shit. For sure. Stepdad gets stuck in sync. <laughs> <laughs> Jack Nicholson catches stepsons Michael Keaton and Christian Slater jacking off. <laughs> uh, Josh, have you watched anything of note this week? 
Yeah, um, I watched uh, Jackie Chan's uh, Wheels on Meals by Sammo Hung, which is just uh, Jackie, Han- Jackie Chan uh, being a skateboarding food truck guy who beats up a bunch of Spanish men with his roommate so that uh, a girl will like them. Uh, it, it's a whole bunch of sort of silent era physical uh, comedy set pieces of them trying to impress a girl mixed with Sammo Hung and Jackie Chan uh, extremely insane martial arts fight scenes where like Jackie Chan once again will you know uh, drop kick dudes off dirt bikes uh, one dude uh, kick kicks past a bunch of candles and the candles go out the choreography is nuts but it's like ultimately a comedy so I had a really great time with that um, but m- more fitted to like what we're talking about today I also watched Kiyoshi Kurosawa's Pulse Oh, wow. uh, which was scary as shit. Uh, and the use of screens and shadows and, and CG and the sort of like digital, this, this like early 2000s switch over from film to digital is just like such an amazing period of films that like, you know, pe- weren't, you know, seen as artfully as they are because some of the CG might have been a little wonky at the time. But like, God, that movie uh, still really, really holds up. And it, it is nice to go back to a time when people didn't really know what the, the, the internet was. Uh, <laughs> because, yeah, people thought that there was going to be, like, demons and ghosts in the internet and shit, and they were scared as hell. <laughs> they were right. Yeah, it turns <laughs> out they were right. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I was playing this game, this maze, and I thought I was having a good time. <laughs> having a good time. It was the scary maze, and I yeah. was into the atmosphere. But then right when I finished the maze... Yeah. Uh, um, an actual demon came out and got me. <laughs> yeah, I mean that, that's a that's you know that's the radicalization they're talking about these days. It's all demons. Ky- but, Kiyoshi um, Kurosawa I, predicted those videos where like you would watch them for like five seconds and then like the girl from The Exorcist would pop up and scream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, Pulse is one of my favorite movies, and I think it's I think it holds the record for best movie about like why screens are making us more isolated which seems like kind of like a hack point but yeah. i think he i think like he these nailed- phones that are trying to yeah. bring us together are actually kind of tearing us apart yeah exactly <laughs> but it's like the way the way he does it though very smart no, very exactly good. Yeah. I, I love presenting the ideas that my favorite filmmakers are presenting to <laughs> seem stupid when actually they made me very emotional and yeah. also gave me a lot of intellectual work to do <laughs> <laughs> I'm smarter than movies. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, I, I think the way that he just does, like, the internet through, like, this sort of, like, digital unreality kind of quality mm-hmm. is is way more disturbing and, like, more meaningful than just, you know, we're we're, we're so alone, yeah, but we're supposed <laughs> to be connected, and, you know? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, we kind of touched on that a little bit last week with Inland Empire and the way that that presents kind of an internet type aesthetic with mm-hmm. its early digital. And I feel like so many those early 2000s films are all just ripe for the podcast because we all we all love that shit. Mm-hmm. Um, but a film from a little earlier than that that I watched uh, was Dawn of the Dead, 1978, George Romero. And uh, this thing, look. You got some prog rock music blasting the whole time. Nice. You got some blue zombies walking all slow, being consumers. Yeah. <laughs> that's not the yeah, internet. The... It's the mall, bro. Yeah. Uh, mall culture. It's much like, uh, and, and I loved the Jim Jarmusch uh, zombie picture from last year, uh, The Dead Don't Die. And I feel like that had some very, you know, weak uh, kind of... Uh, 
not weak, but like basic, you know, oh, consumerism's gonna get you type thing. But I feel like Dawn of the Dead is so fucking bleak and so much more of a uh, harsh implication of all the circumstances that lead to zombies infesting a mall. Oh, well, th- think think about that scene where they break into like the, the poor housing structure and basically oh shoot people who aren't even zombies because <laughs> they're so yeah. terrified. The opening scene of the, or not opening scene, but one of the first scenes, you just see, because uh, these are a couple of SWAT team guys that uh, did what every cop should have done sometime in the last two months and ditched the the boys in blue to work on their own, <laughs> uh, do a little private contract. <laughs> uh, no, but they they leave the outfit during this zombie apocalypse when they see their brothers in blue become unhinged racist killing machines. You know, you see that one cop in the beginning just so excited to kill black and puerto rican zombies <laughs> like <laughs> jesus dude you could mask it a little bit uh but this film is just so harrowing and mm-hmm. dark and also just fucking hilarious in the way that the best gore fests are you know I, I mean maybe hilarious isn't the right word and i seem like a psycho laughing my ass off at the violence here but it's uh it's exactly what i want in this kind of movie mm-hmm. and i was very very pleased to be trapped in the mall uh, yeah. with romero <laughs> and company uh for those two hours so uh you know it's a it's a very obscure film that no horror magazines have ever written about for the last 30 <laughs> years and every horror nerd doesn't have the poster of so uh yeah, yeah take my obscure wreck of watching dawn of the dead because it's good yeah, yeah you never see, know. see, you see, never see know tom savini as the leader of a biker gang <laughs> oh my god yeah. yeah i mean that biker gang is spectacular the <laughs> the best biker gangs of the 70s probably are that and the guys in gone in 60 seconds who pop up for a little bit i don't know if you've seen I that but seen that. it's a great like uh race through Los Angeles movie where at one point a biker gang just pulls up to the cars that are racing each other and just wreaks havoc for like 10 minutes. Do do you know what you guys have to do? At some point you guys have to do uh, Stone Cold. I don't know if you guys have heard of that one. That's the one with um, I don't know. Bosworth, right? Yeah, yeah, with... I, I, what's his first name though I, either brian way bosworth yeah brian think, bosworth right? yeah basically like an nfl flame out uh who who <laughs> got kicked out of football because he kept just like y- yelling about politics the entire time and then and then they for like three years they tried to make him an action star where he goes undercover in that one into a biker gang that's ran by lance henrikson hen uh henrikson and uh bill forsyth and Ooh, it is oh, just it, it's absolutely nuts that that movie ends on like a climax where the bikers like literally just blow up like an entire <laughs> like supreme court building in like oh, the south yeah. <laughs> that sounds awesome that's all on wall street s right there <laughs> uh so we're already going pretty long so let's just fucking dive right into our b picture for the day america is a country very big no oh Oh, very big. Femme Fatale by Brian De Palma. And it's so fucking crazy that we've made it 58 episodes into the show before reviewing a Brian De Palma movie. I think this is like maybe if we're collecting our favorite filmmakers, this might be the favorite of our three. You know, like he's up there for all three of us, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean... Yeah, he can't. He does no wrong in my eyes. Yeah, I mean, over time, I've only grown to love him more. Going from guy who I ranked slightly below the new Hollywood crew to mm-hmm. guy who I love more than all of those guys <laughs> combined, pretty much. Uh, Femme mm-hmm. Fatale is 
Well, it's in my notebook, so give me one second. <laughs> Femme fatale concerns uh, Laura, or Laura, if you want to be French with it. It's, you know, an <laughs> E instead of an A, just De Palma shoving it in our face how French this movie is and how the, the little foo-foo French boys love his <laughs> love, love that vulgar auteurism. Uh, but so she's part of an organized crime group that takes diamonds and runs from a, uh, a can film festival heist and she manages to <laughs> after getting away from the the cohorts in her operation who she backstabbed like a like a classic femme fatale as we open this film you know the credit uh, the titles appear over a french television broadcast of double indemnity and uh yeah so she's able to assume a new identity because luckily a woman who looks just like her just killed herself and uh her parents were looking for her and so she you know falls into the greatest circumstance maybe the uh most like unbelievable happenstance in all of the De Palma She has an exact doppelganger who kills herself yeah. holding plane tickets to America. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, this is you know, you know, like Tony, the Tony Scott kind of schooling the screenwriters, right? What's movies about, what are movies about, but not beautiful lies? You yeah. know what I mean? <laughs> and uh, I think Femme Fatale is a great example of that. Yeah. Um, I mean, so uh, also I love early on when the guy that eventually, uh, you know, the rest of his life is trying to catch up to uh, Laura or Lily. Uh, the first line he says to her is like, are you dreaming or are you high? Then stop dreaming, bitch, <laughs> uh, which is such a great intro to this movie, which, you know, fuck it. We might as well just give the spoiler up top, right? Yeah. Like, because that does inform the entire movie, and if you haven't seen Femme Fatale and your spoiler, uh... What, what, what? Spoiler-centric? Spoiler-averse. Spoiler, yeah. <laughs> if you're spoiler If you're a little bit. Third-act phobic. <laughs> if you're stupid. Yeah, if you're a pussy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's where we're landing. Yeah, so if you're a pussy, uh, turn off the podcast and unfollow us. <laughs> and never listen again. <laughs> And unfollow us. Uh, so as she assumes this identity, though, we we enter the dream world. And uh, the rug is pulled out at the end of the film. But I think uh, Ryu Ryuchi Sakamoto, who scores this film, does such an excellent job at lulling the viewer into that kind of dream atmosphere. Where in the beginning of the film, you know, he's guiding you through this heist where you don't know who any of these characters are. It's a very narratively vague heist. But De Palma is so skilled at editing, camera movement staging you know everything he's a complete filmmaker uh lesbianism yeah oh he's fantastic at portraying lesbianism he went full horny on maine and was like if i can what if i just did the mission impossible heist scene again but i did it at the can film festival which is the nerdiest fucking thing anyone could do and then he's like yeah. okay but what if i put smoking hot babes in it <laughs> and then you know, I do all of the Hitchcock camera moves that everyone has to fawn for, and then I'm going to yeah. really confuse, make them not understand how they're supposed to feel watching this. <laughs> <laughs> and then also uh, score it with the music that's playing on whatever shitty film is premiering at Cannes. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah, when they cut to the audio of that film premiere, which is called like, uh, ooh, or eh, or whatever. East, like, or East West. Yeah. Which is such a great fucking fuck you to can. Yeah. Uh, which De Palma never stopped doing. You know, Domino, which we championed on this show, uh, has a great set piece at a film festival where a shooting is being like live broadcast on the internet. Uh, you know, just keeping with the same 
themes. That's what we love about filmmakers <laughs> is wanting to see death at film festivals <laughs> over the course of multiple decades. Did this premiere at Cannes? Like, or no? Uh, yeah, it was it, it was screened out of competition at Cannes 2002. Oh, okay. Damn, that's wild, man. I was thinking it had to at least yeah. appear. That had to have been yeah. an experience watching that at Cannes. <laughs> Be like, I, I, should I go check the bathrooms right now? <laughs> yeah, like, you're stealing the diamonds. Yeah, I'm going to go to the ladies' room. It seems cool over there. <laughs> there's, there's, there's some European models in there. <laughs> now, everyone put on your special glasses to see in night mode. Uh, because night mode is where this fucking uh, opening heist kicks into overdrive. I love it so much. You know, the, the heist goes wrong. The woman who, uh, or, you know, it goes wrong for multiple reasons as we learn what actually happens later on. But on the surface, it appears that the security has been breached and they have to go into code red mode, at which point the power is struck and uh, the woman uh, leading this operation puts on these night vision goggles and everyone's just bumbling about fucking running into walls. And it's also an ultimate voyeuristic experience of being the only person in an environment who's able to see. You know, that's like De Palma's highest fantasy <laughs> is just having fucked a girl and <laughs> the only person who's able to see. <laughs> The way that De Palma lures us into the dream world, uh, he's using the elements of form like in a very basic way. You know, you get a slow push in on some objects in the room to make you remember them, such as a clock that you hear ticking and the faucet uh, of the bath that our lead character is getting into and her cigarette kind of the, the ash hanging off of it. And you get these slow push-ins on each of these things that you'll end up seeing twice in the movie as De Palma is able to use objects within the scene to like create a visual memory of it. Mm -hmm. uh, so then Laura becomes Lily and she gets on a plane and she mm. meets a... Uh, Peter Coyote, <laughs> yeah. who I, I remember from Bitter Moon. And I can't not associate him just as like a cum-stained pervert. Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> Which is kind of maybe a harsh harsh terminology there but um <laughs> i haven't seen bitter moon but i'll um, i'll say that you're right <laughs> there's a there's a scene where um peter coyote pours milk milk all over his wife's breasts while faith by george michael plays <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> um so i think peter coyote's the perfect kind of like middle-aged guy who's gonna cozy up to an, a nice looking woman and you yeah. know it's like are you okay <laughs> you know it's i think it's perfect casting there uh, JT, how'd you feel about this one? Oh, yeah, I loved it uh, right from the bat. I mean, it's yeah. like it introduces you into all of the De Palma stuff that you're there for. It is so fucking horny and then just like making you confused about like problematizing your like you're getting off on it, yeah. especially like the stuff. I mean, when you bring in Banderas into it, it's just <laughs> like he gets like fucked over and fucked around in like like is it on is it off what's yeah. going on here i love the introduction of the antonio banderas character this is the first thing we see after time jumps ahead seven years uh and you know we we see a split screen image both of antonio banderas <laughs> uh, from a slightly different angle and uh he's using split screen here in a way that you know he's always been a master of deploying split screen but here i feel like it transcends what he's usually doing because oftentimes you're looking at the same image on the left and right or not the same image you're looking at the same object on the left and right side of the screen but the different angles kind of key you into the different perspectives and especially 
especially on this, the the multiple layers of surveillance that are going on. You know, Mm -hmm. in this scene, you have Banderas looking down at our lead character, and you also have uh, the man who just got out of prison who was in this uh, heist with her, and he got fucked over. And now, just through the basic visual grammar of something like split screen, we're able to realize without still knowing fully what's going on that there are two sources of danger for this character. What the fuck are you doing? Excuse me, madame. I believe this is a free country. I'm entitled to make any picture of anything and any way I want from my balcony. Well, yeah, and and the Antonio Banderas character is like a regular staple in the De Palma film. He's kind of mm-hmm. like the, the the sleaze bag who's also a voyeur and sort of like a De Palma uh, fit in, but like yeah. also you know in his own way he's sort of like a patsy uh so like that opening split screen of him is so important because on the left split split screen we stick with him during his entire phone call where he is being given the job to you know take a photo of this this mysterious woman who we know as you know the woman who ran away after she double crossed during the opening heist and so he's getting this job um and his attention is very clearly moving away to the very hot young women having brunch down below uh, his balcony. So we get on the right side, it's his attention, his gaze, as it slowly zooms away from the conversation towards the women down below. But we also get the shot on the left, which always holds right on Ban- Banderas, because we are also, you know, sort of spying on him in a way. And that's where this is going to, you know, turn into, a, you know, sort of the, the drama of the film largely is who is watching who who is manipulating who who is the one who has like complete control and that's something that De Palma has always weaponized through the visuals is like how watching is watching from a sense of distance but also as you know a a sort of a a more powerful position at the same time so it's it's very interesting that like you get a sense of paranoia about the guy who is doing the investigating and then it all makes sense obviously as as the story ends up progressing but what's so interesting about that scene is that that's where he opens with that split screen craziness it goes down to the women having brunch and then it goes to the hitman coming in and brutally killing the one girl in the camo outfit who I believe is um, supposed ends to be... Ends up being the model. Yes. Yeah, so from, the, uh, from the opening yeah. heist, yeah. Yeah, so it ends up being that um, Rebecca um, Romine, uh, who is playing Lore and Lily, teamed up with the girl who she was uh, having sex with in the bathroom and stealing her diamond encrusted gold barely top uh, thing that she's wearing. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, but watching this scene is really important because it's actually used in the exact same way the opening scene is used in Deja Vu, where we're going to see this again at the very end of the film, where we're going to repeat a lot of these images. And what's so funny is it's so filled with so much style. Again, he loves using overhead shots and crane shots and, and slow motion. There's, there's a a part in this where it's just shots of their feet as she's running away. And Mm -hmm. it's just the two hitmen coming after her. And it feels like we're watching like the matrix for a second. Uh, (laughs) like he goes so insane the matrix or the way that he like decapitates his characters and disembodies parts of them or like a brisson brisson matrix yeah exactly yeah (laughs) and and the way that that entire scene is constructed where we kind of feel that something is happening and we're not sure exactly what angle it's going to take and where it's going to happen yet to me it plays like that kind of rube goldberg horror set piecing that you see in like a final destination movie which is like such a funny movie to be thinking about while watching this but it actually comes back to this exact same scene and does it again so i was 
sitting yeah. there going, De Palma, man, he 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 really like took every interest he's ever had and just deployed it in like a piece of like crazy <laughs> Euro sleaze con artist, you know. Uh, but again, another another film noir Hitchcock thing, but just as trashy and as horny as possible. Yeah, I mean, I think the layers of surveillance here is what kind of gives him this formal freedom to, you know, he's also surveilling the thing too. I mean, you yeah. kind of get. You know, if directors have strict formal uh, control. You know, people can criticize them like, oh, the characters can feel like pawns. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, it feels like, I don't know, it feels like that in a De Palma movie, but in a good way. I mean, this yeah. is why he's Especially tired. in this one. Yeah, exactly. too, because it, Because of the unreality, because of the dream mm-hmm. world that uh, the major chunk of this film takes place, I think revisiting it, it is so rewarding if you didn't catch that it's a dream, you know, right away the mm-hmm. first time. And rewatching this, I was like, come on, how did I not yeah. notice? <laughs> the, uh, you know, uh, because his top down, you know, overhead shots are less rigid than usual. Yeah. And they're kind of floating up and down and craning, or like starting as what looks like a top down, you know, sturdy shot. And then the crane starts to move and it's like mm-hmm. floating in a way that's less. Uh, rigid than a lot of De Palma's stuff other than like a, like the porn sequence in Body Double is the only point mm-hmm. of reference for camera movement for this film uh, that I have because it feels so much more dreamlike. Kind well, yeah, of. well, no, and, no, yeah. And, and, and that's a really good point too because Body Double is also another film in question with the artificial sort of the construction of it at the same time, but mm-hmm. also like the world that he's navigating in, in the film industry. And, and, and so like this here, he uses the world of paparazzi and, and models, which, which, you know, I think is partially how he gets away so much with it, because I think some people mm-hmm. at the time they criticize like a lot of the performances and stuff like that. Cause some of them are a little stilted, but I mean, we're talking about a movie that is largely, you know, taking place in again sort of like the the high fashion and photographer realm so having people in like silly outfits and having them put on these performances that are very like image based and stuff like that like it totally works within um the world that he set up which is just a very easy cheat to kind of like get you involved in that because if anything feels kind of off about it you're just like well i mean the world of supermodels and stuff is kind of like that in a way so (laughs) yeah fashion's weird folks um um, no i mean i think the hyper surveillance you know is aspect of this is very interesting because of course de palma has a very hyper vigilant camera Mm -hmm. um and we see paparazzi people using cameras in this movie as you know as low lives and the last thing that our main character wants to be is photographed that's like that's the worst thing that could happen to her Mm -hmm. which is like kind of funny you know given like some of de palma's tendencies to be a little perverted with it with the camera you mm-hmm. know and what's what mm-hmm. you know he uses it as a tool almost well, a weapon sometimes. i mean yeah the the lengths that banderas goes to for his job he mm-hmm. you know dresses up as a homeless man to the first time when he gets the shot and yeah. then to you know get into her hotel he does a little uh does a little problematic uh, gay face <laughs> if you will oh yeah. <laughs> oh yeah i cannot stop thinking about the way that he says i think i left my disc here so good i mean like banderas is fucking incredible hi I- i'm sorry to bother you but i rented this room last night and i think i left my disc here a, a disc when i got home i checked my laptop and the backup disc was gone and it's the only copy i have and I have been searching like hell for it. Then I remember the only place I could have left it was here. So do you mind if I come in and just take a look around? 
has so much more natural charisma than most of the schmucks that uh, De Palma will cast as his pawns, you know, like the Bill Maher looking dude from Body Double. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that that usually works in De Palma's favor. uh, And that's why I think, you know, something like Mission Impossible, uh, you know, forget all the franchise ties to it. Cruz's charisma feels almost at odds with De Palma, you know, uh, rather than the bozo guy that he'll usually be able to get uh, or that De Niro was even able to emulate in the early films, you know, mm-hmm. uh, but here I feel like Banderas's chemistry is so great because he kind of is the secondary character. Mm-hmm. You know, he gets top billing, but you know he's the one chasing the main character. And I feel like also the surrealism presented by like the dream state of it allows for his performance to just be so off the wall. You know, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, there's moments where I notice like. When um, she gets thrown off into the water, which breaks the dream sequence, he's just like laughing. He's like, hell yeah, she's yeah. getting beat up. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, he's dying at that point. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Shot and being, yeah, killed. It's great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I, I also like, too, the way that she plays him, though, in when, when they do meet. And he basically imagines mm-hmm. himself as the sort of, like, active performer in that situation like taking uh, you know trying to make his way in and he's he basically thinks that he's in a in a film noir dealing with mm-hmm. a um mysterious woman who has who has a past and you know she's he's gonna, he's gonna get the photo of her he's gonna uncover this mystery and also maybe she's super hot and he's gonna have sex with her and he's gonna have a great time <laughs> could happen and 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 what's so interesting is that up until that point like De Palma is doing so much of his sort of like classy kind of Hitchcock camera moves that he does to get you built into that suspense and a lot of the scoring is very beautiful too as as he's doing that stuff but the way that it switches when she reveals that she has basically sucked him in so that he would drive away in her husband's car with her clothes with her gun so it would look like uh, he kidnapped her and then she broke into his house sent an email from his computer where uh to to the husband saying that he's that he has kidnapped her and i also love to the shot in his apartment where it's the outside view of paris and then it zooms uh out into his apartment space where it's the exact same like vista of all the buildings but it's taken with photos that he's printed off and put on all his wall um because again (laughs) it's so much like control and who is sort of like manipulating the overall picture here and when she takes over the film and she reveals her real sort of american performance not like this very cheesy french accent that she's putting on throughout the film and it goes to that bar where all of a sudden like all of the kind of you know sort of like pristine whites and the high fashion universe completely dissipates and it's all yeah. like leather and neon and sweat and skin and De Palma goes full like showgirls striptease <laughs> full and and full like crazy split diopter stuff and oh. she just completely like commands every single person in that room in the space and it's like just a completely different movie and the way antonio has to navigate that because he felt like he was in so much control and then all of a sudden he's so like clipped and winged by the fact that he's been dominated by her in the narrative at that point 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, like he he doesn't shy away from like very basic uh, camera tactics of displaying like the power disparity between the characters. Like at, the, mm. at one point in the bar, the camera tilts into a Dutch angle, and she's just towering over Bandera, basically cucked yeah. at that point. And he's like starting to walk away when she's like she's already picked up that one bozo to yeah. go, you know, give him the lap dance and to a but to some to some Euro beats. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I love that. Just yeah. the trashiest just music, the worst s- shit ever. Just getting that lap dance to "I'm Blue" by yeah. <laughs> um, uh, But I love that split diopter shot, yeah, man. Yeah, That's like the, the key to De Palma's, you know, uh, Banderas looking at this man receiving the lap dance yeah. from her, and everything that Banderas knows at that point, and yet he's still so attached to this narrative that he has gotten himself into. You know, mm. well, and, and, and then and then yeah. she she triggers the guy to basically like assault her so that Banderas yeah. has to step in and again she welcomes him to like play a different kind of hero role but it's still like completely manipulated because the shot where Banderas finally does come in and pull that guy off of her and starts beating the shit out of him the shot is a slow zoom in on her as she is cackling as the, yeah. <laughs> the light is going back and forth in the background showing Banderas's shadows as the altercation is happening and she is just fucking cackling watching the entire thing and the shadows on the wall and her expression just just great stuff chef kiss as the film wraps up then uh the the climax is met with uh her being thrown into the water and uh in classic De Palma fashion, the second she hits the water, she happens to lose all of her clothes. Uh, <laughs> uh, but then Oops. wakes up moments later in the bathtub, and you know she knows what she has to do. She almost watches Lily actually kill herself again, uh, but she knows what she has to do after De Palma shows us, you know, the clock and the faucet and the cigarette again. We're back, and we know where we are just through those images of small objects. And then she gives her the talk. Uh, I'm your fucking fairy godmother. <laughs> what a great line. <laughs> uh, but then we see that car accident again, and we see those key images, you know, the sun peeking out through that overcast shadows, uh, the man uh, taking a picture of people looking back at that, uh, you know, the the uh, reflection hanging uh, from the necklace that Lily gave this truck driver who is kind of dressed like how Brian De Palma dresses on set with the <laughs> puffy vest and kind of chubby and the nose and the gray hair kind of looks like De Palma a little bit. Uh, yeah, so we see that altercation once again, but after uh, the fabric of time has been changed and we're in reality now and not in the dream world, it's even more fucking gruesome than in the dream world. And the two yeah. hitmen are fucking impaled by a like forklift thing. And mm-hmm. it's so disgusting, but it's the happy ending that we wanted. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. There's like that purity of like the Hollywood ending of them, like getting like uh, sort of patching everything up. But then it's just like Banderas is like, Hey, do you want to get a drink <laughs> after just two men are just impaled? <laughs> It's his time. He had to step up. <laughs> yeah, look, shoot your shot. Yeah. Um, any any final thoughts on this one before we wrap up? Well, I like how it just ends like deja vu too. Yeah. It's like almost same exact ending with like the freeze frame. Even though the freeze frames mean different things in different movies, I love. Yeah. It. Just ends on Bandera's confused face, uh, like freeze frame. Like what? <laughs> it's like you you almost you almost expect like third eye blind to start playing. You know? <laughs> um, but then yeah. I, I like how it it shows the image of like kind of how exactly how this went down you know De Palma kind of 
reveals the puzzle at the end, which is, you know, he's the ultimate auteur. He wins. <laughs> yeah, well, because it, it, it also, like, again, the same as Deja Vu, it repeats the exact same imagery from the set piece earlier in the film, but the butterfly effect is kind of, like, taken place, and you get all these extreme detailed moments of, like, you know, these different things that happened where she let Lily go and Lily gave a crystal Netflix or a necklace to the driver who then put it on his, uh, like, rear view mirror. And then she's carrying a silver briefcase now. So when the light, the sun hits it, the light hits her briefcase, which then hits the crystal necklace, which blinds the driver and has him, instead of running over the model, impaling the two hitmen, which is just like, uh, again, it's, it's very insanely visually elaborate death scene. And then it ends on like the romantic, the exact same deja vu thing of the, haven't we met before? Only in my dreams. <laughs> <laughs> Closing thoughts before we rate this one, JT? Um, yeah, I want to, I mean, just De Palma in general, The God. Um, Blowout is probably my favorite De Palma and like potentially my favorite movie of all time. And I just love how he can return to like this same setup and like blow out like body double and just each time like add like stack layers and layers on top of the same thing, adding more perversion, <laughs> more um, surveillance. Like in this, it's just so impressive that like I'd say the vast majority of the scenes, someone is watching someone else mm -hmm. and just like to carry that throughout and like abstract it and up the ante each time. Oh my god, yeah, but by the time he hits that bridge scene, and we know everyone's play at that point, where she is pretending to be the wife as the husband brings the ransom money over, and Antonio Banderas is pretending to be the kidnapper, but then at the last minute, he's like, wait, no, I'm not the kidnapper, don't listen to your, uh, your, uh, filthy <laughs> bitch wife, bro, and then she shoots the husband, and then Antonio and her shoot her s each other, and the two hitmen are watching the whole thing from beside the bridge. <laughs> and the hitmen <laughs> are like talking to each other, who have also kidnapped a guy. And it's so funny where where they also go, "This bitch is doing it again," or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> like like that, that that final bridge set piece is like just like like it is a classic sort of like noir double cross, but like with four different active layers into it of people watching each other and trying to manipulate the situation to their own advantage and yeah to end that with antonio like smiling and bleeding on the ground a bunch of corpses everywhere and sh her naked uh you know going into the abyss in the water <laughs> like visually and stylistically it's just absolutely uh insane and conceptually even in his writing every time brian de palma writes one of his own movies it's exactly like this it's exactly like what watching dress to kill is like too you're just oh, <laughs> like there are 30 page scripts of hardly anyone talking and just everyone watching each other and how crazy can he make the set pieces of them watching each other be <laughs> Rating? Yeah, I'm shooting this down five bullets. Oh, Goddamn classic. masterpiece. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go five bullets. How uh, much like the guns used in this movie? Um, <laughs> but oh, you didn't tell me there was violence in this movie. But I think this is a great um, example of a director betting on themselves and winning, right? You know, that's why I didn't quite explain like, um, you know, why I said De Palma won. I mean, it's like you know, this movie is about people watching people watching people. You know, who has who is the narrative, you know, who's actually driving the narrative and it's De Palma at the end, right? Because of all of his formalistic yeah. tricks, you know, all the fun split diopters, split screens, you know, um, 
hyperactive camera work it's it's just it's so much fun and uh you know plus the horniness too you know that helps i mean yeah. how could we for, how could we not say the line you don't have to lick my ass just fuck me <laughs> how could we how could we exclude that from the podcast i mean trust me i already bookmarked yeah, it so yeah. to pull the clip yeah, yeah. <laughs> you yeah you have that clip saved it. huh you yeah. have that clip saved and i already had it yeah. <laughs> yeah that's what that's what i'm talking about but uh, <laughs> um yeah another great piece of sleaze um high art sleaze because it's at a film festival can film festival <laughs> by uh brian de palma what about you eddie I mean, yeah, I'm, it, it's five for me. This is one of my favorite films. Uh, and, you know, favorite De Palma means favorite in general. And uh, I, I had it like a little below my top tier before. It, it's definitely among his masterpieces. I think that it has kind of a, uh, a Euro sleaze feel, as Josh said earlier. And I think that like a lot of European genre films have less of a regard for narrative precision and are more, uh, if you'll excuse the phrase, about the vibes. And I feel like De Palma keys into this in a really interesting way through that dream feeling he achieves throughout the film. And and yet it's De Palma and he's still going to be like that exacting master who's always pulling the strings. And I think that the combination of just like bitter irony and humor and uh, sex appeal and voyeurism, it's just it's all here. And I think his skill as a pure image maker is only matched by his skill as a thinker about movies and about how we watch them. And uh, yeah, it's a true blue masterpiece. Josh, you really, you really picked out two of the best movies ever for this podcast. <laughs> I, uh, I what about you, it, man? Yeah, obviously this one <laughs> definitely has to get the five from from me as well. And the way that I like connect this to Deja Vu, like just in the fact that obviously they're again both doing Hitchcock in like a bit of a trashier element, but obviously um, Tony Scott is you know, very clearly doing a kind of like commercial genre riff. And the thing I love about this is that the, <laughs> this really just isn't, this is just like, this is as sleazy and as horny and weird as De Palma likely ever got. And yet still the power of cinema remains. Uh, it is a, a movie where cameras and fantasies and smoking hot babes literally change reality the same way that Denzel changes <laughs> his reality using time travel. De Palma just didn't need the plot to do it, man. He's like, who cares? It was a dream. Whatever. <laughs> Fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> I think it also pairs well with uh, Raising Cain for that reason. And like, especially the tactic he uses on uh, some re returning to certain set pieces and keying in on certain images, especially mm -hmm. with a uh, roadside impaling that occurs in both movies. But you know what? We're going a little long, and we can't just keep fucking talking about these movies. Um, <laughs> so uh, as we wrap up here, we do have an email this week, and I had it, and here it is. This week's email comes to us from Felix Dembinski. Uh, he says, hi, Extended Clip Gang. There was some discussion on the last episode of the early digital look and directors making use of digital videos' new aesthetics. I wanted to know your thoughts on films shot on analog videotape that are using the format in a similar exploratory way as to how Inland Empire uses the possibilities of DV. Uh, now Felix says, Antonioni's The Mystery of Oberwald, Lars von Trier's Medea, 
Uh, I'm pretty sure that's Tyler Perry, Felix. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Got him. Peter Watkins, the free thinker, and a number of Bill Viola's shorts stand out for me. Uh, but to go along with the hot, the podcast's high-low format, I'm sure that thousands of SOV horror films from the 80s and 90s, some must look good. Uh, let me know your thoughts. Malcolm, do you have any SOV recommendations? Yeah, yeah. I actually just remembered one right now. Um, I saw um, a series of uh, Kuchar Brothers shorts back in, uh, I think, early February. Forgot the program that did it, but shout out to them. Um, who knows when they'll be back. Yeah, rep, <laughs> rep Cinema in LA is dead now, so you don't have to shout anyone yeah, out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm not, I'm not trying to clout chase like that. Um, and Was I, it at Veggie Cloud? <laughs> Veggie Cloud. <laughs> I wish. Um, no, and there was actually a series of shorts, you know, over like uh, decades that were shot on a lot of different formats, like... Um, in his kind of late 2010s work, uh, Mike Kuchar specifically, there was a lot of his shorts shown. He gets into kind of like uh, Inland Empire, uh, DV type territory, mm. but one made in 1998 called The Stranger in Apartment 9F. I really enjoyed. It's just about um, a woman, kind of an older woman, a little haggard looking, um, looking for Mr. Right, you know, so to speak, in her kind of her dingy apartment. And uh, I mean, just the way this aesthetic kind of matches up with like all the trash on her floor and kind of like... Um, you know, this kind of, uh, I think, male prostitute, or maybe it's someone in the apartment, I don't quite remember, kind of coming over and her trying to court him, this kind of like skinny, white 20-year-old, and she's kind of like a, you know, older 60-year-old woman, kind of the desperation in that really just kind of fits spoke all to together. <laughs> yeah, it's, it spoke to me. It really, uh, it, uh, it hit a tune. Um, so yeah, that's that's one I, I could think of. What about you, JT? Um, in this aesthetic, I think I'm going to venture outside of the realm of film, I was uh, recently, um, like the last few months, I re- uh, like rewatched Jackass, like mm. the TV show, and just like the early like the video look of that, I feel like adds so much to the charm of the yeah. boys' antics. Was that on videotape or like DV? I think I, I'm not sure. It, it might was have like been videotape actually. Like because at least the early. Stuff. I think like the first season does like I mean gradually like throughout time it yeah. does get onto DV, but I'm pretty certain the first season was. That makes sense. And I think it gives it like this. I don't know. It's very stupid and yeah. fun, but it like it adds to feel? that homemade charm. Yeah. Um, Josh, what about you? Any recommendations for shot on video stuff? Yeah, actually, we uh, I was introduced to this by um, a guy on Twitter. You guys might know his name is Steve Carlson. He is like a total genre trash fiend. And um, he actually came on our podcast once and brought on shot on video horror. And it was my first time experiencing it. Um, and I, I got to say, one of them that he brought on has really stuck with me. And it was by Charles Pinion. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He did... Um, he did a shot on video like splatter uh, punk rock skateboarding film called Twisted Issues in the 80s, um, which is like really well done. But uh, he also did one called Red Spirit Lake, which uh, basically really does feel like you're watching sort of like beamed from another planet home video quality. Um, uh-huh. It has like a really dreamy, lo-fi, like transgressive snuff film quality almost. And in the style and the way that the editing is done, it's very schizophrenic. And he also does all kinds of crazy lighting and like even neon lighting and surreal dream sequences inside of it. Um, and in just like over 60 minutes, it has like a gangster conspiracy. It has an ancient coven of like sexually assaulted witches. It has alien abductions. 
uh, a dude burning to death in a sauna, penis mutilation, a little bit of Satanism, um, and one of the uh, rapist gangsters is anal fisted to death by one of the vengeful spirits. I've, nice. I've literally like my type of movie. Yeah, it's one of the craziest films I've ever seen, and the fact that it was shot in like someone's grandma's house on like an analog videotape with crazy lighting and stuff it it blows my mind that that film's like surreal and nightmare qualities translate, you know, d- despite the mm-hmm. fact that you know uh, the limitations that they had. So that would be uh, if anyone's looking to get into shot on video horror, that was my entry point, and I had a total blast with it. So. I have a couple recommendations. One of them is kind of reappropriating uh, that look in the age of, you know, proper digital. Uh, Andrew Bajowski's Computer Chess. Uh, I was not as hot on that film as like a lot of my friends, but I really appreciated what he was able to do with video there in kind of recreating a TV documentary look uh, at, you know, a specific subject like so many documentaries are and he's able to make a really great uh, like not really a great dramatic structure necessarily on top of it, but he's able to, you know, narrativize i guess that aesthetic of like tv documentary about some weird people playing computer chess uh and make you know take advantage of those analog video textures and make something really interesting out of it and occasionally uh gets to some really unique atmospheric stuff that i'd never seen uh also i would say some of the jean-luc godard stuff from the late 70s early 80s such as numero du and uh yeah to keep it non-fiction hoop dreams well one of the best documentaries about basketball ever <laughs> it actually just lost to jurassic park in the movie bracket today oh you uh, know what we actually don't talk about the movie bracket yeah. on this show <laughs> it doesn't exist it's not my bad my bad <laughs> we don't acknowledge the movie bracket on this show hey, hey it's not a competition all, all movies are good, you know? I just wanted to say, objectively, Hoop Dreams is good. It's just not as good as Jurassic Park, so I'm sorry. I guess I guess so. I guess that's what we learned. <laughs> that's what the people are saying nowadays. Oh, God. So, Felix, um, check out Jurassic Park, buddy. Yeah, I think that's exactly <laughs> what, that's what we're leaving here with. I think I'm cutting that whole segment except for the Jurassic Park bit. Uh, <laughs> uh, you can always reach, it, reach out to us, as Felix did, at extended clip podcast at gmail.com you can also hit up our discord it's all over twitter you can find it or just ask me if you can't find it uh we're on twitter at extended clip 69 i'm at ipod underscore video i'm at bitch face palace i'm at Tallboy thin legs and josh thank you so much for coming on the show uh our listeners they probably know uh where to find you but if they oh, don't yeah. where can they find you you guys can find me at Twitter at, at, at the Josh L, and I'm just dropping hot takes and dropping our own podcast. Uh, so these guys where we talk about genre movies uh, all the time. And yeah, that's basically it. Yeah, if you check out Sleezoids, you might uh, find a little familiar uh, format. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys, you guys just had uh, Rob Franco on recently. I listened to that episode. Uh, by the time you guys are listening to this, uh, we're going to be talking about Scarface and Carlito's Way with Rob Franco, I think, oh, wow. tomorrow. So yeah. uh, look forward to our defense of um, Al Pacino and Latino face. Oh, dude. I'm I'm for it. He yeah. should be able to do that. Oh, we've we've talked about the many races of Al Pacino on this podcast. Uh, it's one of our favorite, one of our cinematic it's, fetishes. We basically said, you know what? 
Al Pacino, you know, if, if that's who's going to be portraying you, at least he's cool. Uh, Rob, Rob, <laughs> Rob was like, if I have to put up with Sean, Plen, Sean Penn playing like a sniveling Jewish lawyer. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I heard uh, Joseph Goebbels actually directed Sean Penn's performance <laughs> in that movie. <laughs> no, you know, playing another race is just called acting. <laughs> one, one thing I discovered in research for that podcast episode, by the way, I don't know if you guys know this. Uh, Alan Dershowitz tried to sue Brian De Palma for that role. I do know this. Yes. In, in the oh film. Oh my god. And which is the biggest self-own I've ever fucking heard. Imagine <laughs> imagine <laughs> watching that movie, looking at what Sean Penn's doing on that screen and being like, "Hey, that's me. That's me, man, right there." <laughs> We've already reviewed Reversal of Fortune, but I think we just got to get it back on the pod and pair it with yeah. Carlito's way now. <laughs> I think it came out at the uh, around the same time. Around so. the same time. Yeah, exactly. You you either want the hagiography hey, hey of Alan Dershowitz or you want the truth by someone who is <laughs> silenced by the media <laughs> for telling truth. You want to see his jump shot. Yeah. Uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, thanks again for coming on, Josh. Uh, no problem, people, guys. listen to his pod, and uh, we'll see you next week. JT, did you did you select a double? feature for next week yes i did and brian de palma left me so horny i had to explore this even more uh with uh my picks for next week i mean before you say it, you know you can just jack off right? <laughs> no me and jt aren't like a month long no fap thing so <laughs> i was not invited <laughs> what do you think i'm doing while we're recording the podcast um i'm doing batman returns Ooh. is the a picture Ooh. And yeah. then uh, the follow-up to that is Ilsa, She-Wolf of the SS. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> yes, dude. We'll use our Jewish privilege to talk about that one. <laughs> I cannot wait for that. All right. Uh, we'll see you next week, folks. Are you high? Do you want me to stop my recording there? Then stop dreaming, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>